coming up on Tech Nation, is gender viewed the same way by non-human primates, such as bonobos and chimpanzees? Emory University primatologist Dr. Franz de Wool talks about his book, Different. Then Dr. Steve Worland from Effector Therapeutics tells us about their approach to cancer. Among their efforts, non-small cell lung cancer and ER-positive breast cancer. Then Kevin Ali, the CEO of Organon, explains how this women-focused company went global with its 64 products in just one year. That's a story in itself. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, I asked Jaron Lanier about something he wrote in his book, Who Owns the Future? It was, the clamor for online attention only turns into money for a token minority of ordinary people. But there is another tiny class of people who always benefit. I asked him, who are they? Ah, well, the people who always benefit are the people who have gotten close to the most effective, biggest, and best computers in a network. This is something I started to notice around the turn of the century. I'd, I'd been waiting with tremendous anticipation for the wave of well-being and prosperity that digital networking would create in the world. And what I saw happening instead was a lot of people I knew not doing so well, a lot of governments going into austerity with the Great Recession, loss of social mobility jobless recoveries, hollowed out job markets. And what I noticed was this um, intense concentration of wealth and power, the, you know, which is sometimes called the 1% by the Occupy movement sorts of people. And all those people, all the new occupants anyway, seemed to be close to some big computer or another. They were either close to one of the big financial computers running high-frequency trades or weird leveraged derivatives in a hedge fund or something, or they were next to one of the big Silicon Valley computers like a search or social network or a giant online store or something like that, or they were next to a giant insurance company computer or a giant credit company computer. Think about Kodak versus think about Instagram, where you just you know take your picture and click it's on the it's on your Facebook site. It's anywhere you want it to be. You send it there. So compare those two companies. Well, look, first of all, I don't have anything against Instagram, and I don't have anything against tremendous success. I'm a Silicon Valley guy. Uh, I've helped start startups that have become parts of Google and Adobe and other companies. So I'm, I'm very pro-success. The problem I have with what we're doing is we're creating a kind of success that's shrinking the economy in which our success makes sense. So if you look at Kodak, it directly employed hundreds of thousands of people at good middle-class levels with security benefits and all. Instagram employed 13 people, period, when it sold for a billion dollars. What we've been asking to do with the idea of free information is ask people to revert to the informal economy idea, where there's a kind of value. You can get benefits from the way we're treating information as free. You can get reputation. You can get some ego stroking. You can get noticed. You can get occasional gigs and promote yourself for them. But you get very little formal value. Now, the interesting thing about formal value, especially for middle class people, is that 
it didn't just come about by decree from the fates or something. It was actually <laughs> a hard-won you know, a, a triumph of the labor movement. We were talking about Kodak and Instagram. If you go to Rochester, New York, where both uh, Kodak and Polaroid were based, before that, there had been an empire of buggy whip <laughs> manufacturers. And the interesting thing about buggy whips is that, of course... That industry was made obsolete because uh, motor cars and trucks took over from horse-driven vehicles. But at the same time, the people who drove those new motorized vehicles uh, had to fight to be recognized as actually doing work. The labor movement sort of settled the question of whether the value delivered by somebody who is taking much less risk and much accepting much less hassle and living in much greater comfort in a motor vehicle could still be treated as doing real work that was worth being paid for. And, you know, what happened around the turn of the century with Silicon Valley and with the finance industry is we decided, hey, it's nice for us to benefit from getting information from free for free. We have the biggest computers, and if we don't have to pay for the information, then we can leverage them to compute our way to success. And what that really means is that the, the form of participation that's required for the new technologies that are so information-centric, that kind of participation is no longer treated as real work. You may know Jaron Lanier from his other books, including You Are Not a Gadget and The Future of Everything. I was able to speak with Jaron Lanier about who owns the future on Tech Nation in 2013. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, what is gender to a bonobo or a chimpanzee? Do they view gender differently from humans? Emory professor Dr. Franz DeWall talks about his book, Different, Gender Through the Eyes of a Primatologist. Then a cancer company fighting the fact that cancer hijacks cells for its own purposes. Effector Therapeutics is working on numerous cancers, and we'll talk about its work with non-small cell lung cancer and ER-positive breast cancer. And Organon, how can a one-year-old company be global and already have 64 products, much of which is women-focused? Kevin Ali, the CEO of Organon, explains. TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Franz Duwall. Professor Duwall, welcome to Tech Nation. I'm glad to be there. Let's start with the fact that physical size and strength does not necessarily define who dominates. Chimpanzee society, for example, is male-dominated, while the society of bonobos is female-dominated. Is there any biological explanation for this? For why, You mean why bonobos are different in this regard than chimps? We think it's probably the ecology, is that um, the, the forest in which the bonobos live allows them to be together more, 
then the chimpanzees need to spread out over the forest. The bonobo females, they can hang together. And that's what they do. They, they're very bonded and they, they call each other before they build nests at night and so that they um, build their nests uh, within the hearing range of each other. And that allows the females collectively to dominate the males. So, so the, it's not an individual dominance. Individually, the females are not bigger than the males, but collectively they do. And we think it's made possible by their environment. But we also see that a bit in the chimpanzees because the females can together overcome. Yeah. We see that in in captivity even more. In captive colonies, I worked with a very large colony in the Netherlands. The female chimpanzees, they have a, a level of solidarity. And so for males, it's impossible to rape them, for example, things like that. And so uh, in captivity, the females have more power because they are more together than in the field where they are often spread out. Now, a lot of this book is looking at primates yeah. and then saying... Well, what do we know about humans? How do we deal as humans? For the record, how close are we to primates? We are exactly equally close to chimps and bonobos. The DNA evidence says it's more than 95% similar. I, I would say that we are probably as close to chimps and bonobos as the two elephant species, the Asian and the African species are to each other. And we call them both elephants. That's also why I think both humans and apes should be called apes. <laughs> so, so we're extremely close. <laughs> yeah, I know you may not agree with that, but I think humans are apes. We are large, tailless primates. That's how we define apes. Yeah. That's comforting. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct, yeah. <laughs> now, you also write that we share socio-emotional makeup with them. What is socio-emotional makeup? Is that basically our social psychology is extremely similar. We humans, we always emphasize our intellectual capacities, and so we talk about language or mathematics or technology. But... Our emotional, social, emotional life is extremely similar, I think, to that of the other primates. We have a need for affection. We have a need for love. We, we connect with each other. We cooperate. We compete in, in very similar ways. We have jealousies. In very sim I think psychologically we're extremely similar to the other primates, even though we usually talk about other things. We usually talk about how we have language or or are smarter than they are. But now let's get to gender. Mm -hmm. Gender, of course, is a word we humans came up with. How does society currently define gender? And how might we redefine it? So gender is usually defined as the cultural side of the sex roles. It's how you express yourself. And, and so I, I usually divide gender not in male and female, but in masculine and feminine, because it has to do with behavior. And, and everything in between uh, masculine and feminine. So biological sex is largely binary, not completely, but 98% binary, male versus female. Uh, but gender is, I would not call that binary. Gender is more a, a spectrum of all sorts of possibilities and is very influenced by the culture in which you live. In current society, unfortunately, people have started to confuse these terms. And so they use the word gender where they should use the word sex. So, for example, they say, what is the gender of your dog? 
which which is really not a good question because I'm I'm not sure the dog has a cultural expression of which sex it is. And but I think because English has a deficit, Eng English has only one word: sex for having sex and having a sex. <laughs> English is uh, deficient in that regard, and people have started to fill the gap with the word gender, and now everyone's getting confused. I think. I see. I see. Now, what about other languages and other cultures? Do they have multiple words? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In, in German, for example, you have Geschlecht, that is for, for the sex of an individual. And you have sex, which is having sex. So, so yeah, there, there are languages, uh, and also in French, I think there are languages that have a separate word for it. Perhaps the first insight of your book, for me, is acknowledging our collective assumption that we humans are the masters and designers of our own behavior. To what extent is that true? And to what extent is that just not true? Uh, I think it's a total overestimation of what we are and how we behave ourselves. There's a lot of things that um, are biological. So, for example, the violence of, of males is, is universal in the primates. It's more, more males than females who are violent. And, in, and universal in human society, you look at the, at the homicide statistics of any nation, uh, it's more men than women. And so that's not something that we decide ideologically or culturally that men should be more violent. They just are. And I think what we can do culturally is try to reduce it or try to enhance it. And so some cultures, they they stand on man being violent, maybe cultures that are engaged in warfare or something like that. And others, they try to suppress it to the degree that some cultures, there's basically no murder rate. Uh, the murder rate is extremely low. So I think culture has a modifying effect, but um, certain things are sort of core differences between the sexes. Culture is so important in the sense that we're not talking about laws that are there to prevent people. We're talking about the entire human environment, mm -hmm. which prevents people or directs mm -hmm. people in another way. I guess that would be a better way to say it. Yeah, not just with laws. We do it with education. We do it with the example that we set for boys and girls. And so there's an enormous amount of cultural transmission going on. And, and what I argue in my book is that that also applies to the other primates, is that that's why you can speak of genders in the other primates as well, is because there's a cultural side, a learned side to their behavior. So, for example, a chimpanzee, we consider adults when they're 16, which means that, they, well, they nurse for longer than humans, most humans, uh, so they have an extremely slow development in which they learn a lot of things, which includes that young females learn from their mom how to behave and young males learn from the males around. So they usually don't have a father figure, but they learn from the adult males around how to behave. And so there's also a learned component to their behavior. That's why we biologists, we almost never speak of instinct anymore. We, we don't believe that there are purely genetic tendencies. So, so instinct is a term that we don't use anymore because other animals also learn a lot of their behavior. I'm very gripped by your book in the sense that not only are you showing us examples of how a number of primates behave, but you're really showing the difference between our attitudes and how our attitudes about gender our attitudes about ourselves are truly affecting what we do. The words that we're using and our expectations of ourselves and of society. One example would be the group of female lawyers who were very unhappy mm -hmm. with a lecture you gave 
that many other groups had no problem with. Mm -hmm. Let's start there. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so uh, when I was younger, I I gave a lot of lectures at the zoo uh, about animal behavior. And if I describe chimpanzee society, I say that the males are dominant, which is true. The males are physically dominant. They're not necessarily more powerful in in every regard, but they're physically dominant over the females. And when I described that this was a group of um, female lawyers, they disagreed with me. They didn't know anything about chimps, as far as I could tell. They had never looked at them for longer than a minute, I think. But they disagreed that uh, the males were dominant <laughs> over the females. Uh, and it's only later when I showed them the actual ch- chimpanzees and, and showed them uh, their behavior that they um, calmed down a little bit because they saw that this was the right description of what's going on. But, you know, people get very upset. It's because they look at the primates as a mirror for themselves and then the mirror has to agree with how they see themselves, which the mirror doesn't always want to do, you know? I have to say that this made a lot of sense to me. As I grew up, the idea was feminism, where the same as men were equal. Mm -hmm. And that worked really great until I got pregnant. (laughs) The next day it was like, well, honey, it's your turn. Oh, no, I'm the one that's pregnant. Oh, no. (laughs) So it's really about understanding who we are Uh and not letting the ideas that are incorrect overwhelm us and the ones that are correct we need to help us define this fabric of life that we have. Yeah, so we we often confuse our wishful thinking with reality. Uh, And and we do that in every possible way. I I was part of a student movement where where we decided that we were egalitarians. We We were beyond hierarchies. We were completely democratic and egalitarian. And if you looked at the student movement that we had, it was as hierarchical as can be. We had leaders. Uh, and we had minions, um, but we we pretended that we were egalitarians. And I think humans are very good at that. It's to pretend, for example, that there's no sex differences, that they are totally meaningless. Uh, we can do away with them tomorrow if we want to, but it's not going to happen because we are primates and, and in the, all the primates, we have some sex differences going on. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Emory University Professor Emeritus of Primate Behavior, Dr. Franz de Waal. You know him from his many books, including Chimpanzee Politics, Mama's Last Hug, and The Age of Empathy. He's here today with different gender through the eyes of a primatologist. You know, I actually laughed out loud when I read this sentence that you wrote. My main bias is that I don't trust human (laughs) self-reports. Let's go there. (laughs) You really want to go there? You know, I'm a biologist and I've lived for um, 25 years in the psychology department as a psychology professor. And psychology has turned away from behavior, has turned to questionnaires. So so they use self-report to have people talk about their sex lives, for example, which is totally untrustworthy, I think, what they say about that, or what they eat, or how they behave. So I, I personally prefer to see behavior. You know, in, instead of asking my chimps how often they have sex, I, I just count how often they have sex, which is much more reliable, I think. So, yeah, I, I don't trust um, the current um, psychology self-questionnaire type stuff. You know. Well, you saw a lot. You saw more than just males and females having sex. Yeah. And so I I rely on behavior 
and uh, I describe also uh, all sorts of sexual behavior and differences between the sexes and similarities. There's, there's fundamental similarities also between the sexes. And instead of asking them about it, and uh, which I cannot do, of course, I, I'm sort of very pleased that I cannot do that. So in a sense, what we see in humans, we see as well in primates. I think in, in humans, you have some differences, obviously, in the sense that humans have nuclear families, where you have a male and a female and children. Um, that's a, a, a uniquely human arrangement, which also has its problems. It has, it has benefits. It has made it possible for us to populate the earth because males got involved in offspring care. And, and as a result, we could have more offspring than the apes have. The apes, the apes have a baby every six years, uh, the females, and, and so they cannot do more than that. We can have more offspring than they do, and that's why we are so successful. But the nuclear family also has broad problems because, for example, rape is, not, is extremely rare in other primates. Uh, but in human society, it's more common, and I think it's partly because we have divided ourselves in families with different houses and dwellings, which makes it possible for a man to control a woman, uh, which is not possible in an open environment like in an open society of chimpanzees or bonobos, where uh, many females will come to the defense of a female who is in trouble. This happens in the dark, as you say, happens where no one can see. Yeah, it's not visible. So, for example, bonobos have put a complete stop to this because the females have become dominant over males. And this is all based on, on sisterhood, on solidarity between females. And even in chimpanzees, it's a, a rape is extremely rare behavior. That's more typical of humans, I would say, than of the other primates. Now, this is not limited to primates. I mean, you point out that in a pride of lions, it's a sisterhood among the female lions. The males come and go, but we have this sense that there's a head lion and a couple other guys, mm -hmm. and then the girls follow them around. Mm -hmm. It's actually the sisterhood that remains the same at the core. Yeah, I think uh, it's very important to point out that in many animals, the females have a society of their own, basically. They have their, their female network. In some primates, it's a kinship network. Of, of grandmothers and mothers and daughters and so on. So you have the female network and the males are sort of marginal to it. Uh, people always think that uh, in primate societies you have a male who's followed around by females and he orders them around. That's really not in most primates how things work. Uh, the females have their own lives, usually autonomous uh, with other females and, and males yeah, males come and go, and, and, and sometimes they interfere, sometimes they don't. Um, so I, I think people have a, a, the wrong impression of primate societies. Some people say we could solve a lot of this if we just, from the very youngest ages, taught children to be equal and to deal with everything the same exact way. You point out that play for boys is different than play for girls. Yeah, the play behavior in the primates is uh, very different. Uh, the females are very interested in infants. Uh, and as soon as there's a mother with a newborn baby, they hang around the mother, they try to touch the baby. And, and when they're older, the mother may let them and, and, and turn them into babysitters, basically. Uh, the females also will have dolls. If you give them dolls, if you give dolls to chimpanzees, the females will carry them and hold them against their nipple and, and make a nest for them. The males, it's better not to give dolls to males because they take them apart, basically, and they 
rip them apart. So, 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 but the females are very caring, and this prepares them, of course, for their later life when they um, when they will have their own babies. Now, males, the play behavior of males is roughhousing. They, they like to mock fight with each other, and they, they run around and they beat each other up playfully. And, and if you look at human society, I think that's a universal difference, is that uh, females are more interested in dolls and males are more interested in uh, in rough and tumble play, as it is called. And that's a sort of universal difference. So, so already at a very early age, you see these differences in play behavior. Uh, and of course, they are averages. You will also have girls who play more like boys and boys who play more like girls. And actually, I'm very interested in in the variability, which we also see in the primates. And in my book, I describe a female chimp named Donna, who as a young, very young female, acted more like the males. She, she liked to wrestle. She, she invited adult males to wrestle with her, and they did. And later she turned into, uh, she turned into a female who looked like a male. She had, she had the broad shoulders and the head and the long hair uh, and the intimidation behavior, and she associated with males. And, and so I, I cannot ask Donna what kind of gender identity she has, but she, uh, she might have said she, she feels like she's a male. Um, uh, but certainly she acted like one uh, and, and looked like one. So you see this mixture of what we might call sex. In reality, you actually will show yourself in adopting what we might say are masculine and feminine gender roles, because you're attracted to both. Yeah, I think um, gender is usually divided uh, in masculine, feminine, and everything in between. And, and I think that same variability we see in the other primates. We see, of course, also in sexual orientation. We see uh, other primates who are more interested in their own sex than in the other sex. Uh, that happens also, and is quite common. And so that same variability that we see in human society we can find in primate society. And the interesting thing for me is that I've never noticed that they have trouble with it. I've, I've never noticed that it bothers them. And, and so, for example, Donna was extremely well integrated. She was very well accepted in her society. And, and so I think primates would probably only exclude someone if that individual disturbed the peace. That's maybe the only reason they would have. Otherwise, uh, they just take them as they come, so to speak. Let's move on. As they get older and they become adults or young adults, let's talk about sense of beauty. Is that something that is just something we talk about in humans, uh, or does that also have an element in the primates? Yeah, the interesting thing is that there's no systematic research on it, but all the stories that I know of what we call self-adornment or self-embellishment uh, come from female primates. So they, so they hang things around their neck or they, they uh, color themselves with fruits that they press on their body or something like that. So, so female primates, they uh, try to adorn themselves. Uh, and, and males may also use objects, but not, not to look better. It's more to intimidate others. So they may pick up um, in captivity, they may pick up buckets and slam them together to make a lot of noise. And in the field, of course, they will break off little trees and, and drag them around and things like that, uh, or dislodge big rocks from a riverbed to make noise with it. And so the, the males use objects to um, impress others and the females more to decorate themselves, I think. 
Yeah, that kind of works out for humans. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I'll buy that. Mm. Now, given the fact that over the last, I'm going to say, 50 years, plus or minus 10 or 20, that we've now developed our verbiage in English, uh, for instance, in the United States, to embody more definitions of gender. Where do you see this going, and where might it get off track? Well, I, I think it is extremely useful to have the terminology of gender versus sex. It was invented by John Money, a sexologist. I'm speaking with Emory University professor Franz de Waal. His book is Different, Gender Through the Eyes of a Primatologist. We'll talk more after a break. Individual Biotech Nation podcasts can be found at biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of whole Tech Nation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, we hear from Dr. Steve Worland of Effector Therapeutics about their efforts in non-small cell lung cancer as well as ER-positive breast cancer, and Kevin Ali about a relatively new company, which is women-focused, Organon. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Emory University professor Dr. Franz de Waal. His book is Different Gender Through the Eyes of a Primatologist. I think it is extremely useful to have the terminology of gender versus sex. It was invented by John Money, a sexologist, who uh, was also the first to set up a gender clinic. He did that at uh, John Hopkins University in, uh, I think, 1965. That's the first gender clinic. Because he had noticed that individuals sometimes identify differently from the sex they're born with. And, and he was puzzled by that, and he wanted to treat these people, and he, he also wanted to give them more respect. And that's why he invent, invented a different terminology. He said, we, we should use the word gender for that, which is a, a term from grammar, basically, that he borrowed. Um, because they they were called queer and weird and abnormal, and he didn't like that kind of terminology. He, wa he wanted a more respectful terminology for them. And I think it is very useful that we have that now and that we speak of gays and lesbians and we speak of um, 
transgender people and so on. We, we have a richer terminology than we used to, uh, thanks to uh, the sexologists. And, and I, I think that's a good development. It means that we hopefully have more respect for the variability that exists in our species, instead of pushing it under the table or uh, trying to have everyone fit the pigeonholes that we have designed. Uh, we're going to be respecting the variability that exists. Well, if I learned anything from your book and this conversation, it seems that we women have to get together if we really want to run things. Well, I think uh, there is a power in sisterhood. And, and the Bonobo is the best illustration of that, is that uh, women don't always get along and there is quite a bit of competition among women. But on one thing, they always agree, and this is true for chimpanzees and Bonobos too, they always agree that they don't want to be harassed by males. And so that's the point where they always come together. And uh, the Bonobo is the champion of that. Well, for all you males listening, email us. Tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> <laughs> Professor DeWall, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back and see us again. You're welcome. My guest today is Emory Professor Franz DeWall. His book is Different, Gender Through the Eyes of a Primatologist. It's published by W.W. Norton. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Cancer is a hijacker. It hijacks cells for its own purposes, and that's the very action that Effector Therapeutics is determined to counteract. Today, we'll talk about two of the candidates in its pipeline. One is for non-small cell lung cancer, and another is for ER-positive breast cancer. We'll talk about the premise behind how they work and the clinical trials they're enrolling now. Dr. Steve Worland is the co-founder and CEO of Effector Therapeutics. Steve, welcome to Biotech Nation. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Now, I have to say... When we think about anything in life, on our bodies especially, we think it's the DNA we were born with, the RNA, this is inside ourselves, the copy of that DNA is the RNA, and that's what's executed to produce a protein. And the proteins are everything. We are protein machines. We know it from the mRNA vaccines that said, we're just going to inject this into you and it's going to produce this pro protein and going to go after that spike protein in, uh, in COVID. Now, let me ask you this. Is there anything that is different about DNA, RNA, protein that we need to know? Well, sure. I think at Effector, what we decided was to capitalize on that knowledge has been known for a long time, DNA to RNA to protein. It was called the fundamental dogma in the 1950s when we figured out molecular biology. But everybody thought all the control or the regulation happened between DNA and RNA. And that's still true almost all the time. But certain proteins are so powerful, they change the cell's behavior so dramatically there's evolved a second control step between the RNA and the protein. So even if you've copied the RNA from the DNA, you don't make the protein unless you get a second sort of go signal. Um, and cancer is very smart and has hijacked that and is sort of inappropriately giving the go signal from RNA to protein. Go, go, go. Keep right. making the, the protein. Right. Keep making right. the protein. Um, so I don't, I'm not familiar with this concept that there's sort of a regulator on that 
should we make the protein or not make the protein? How new is that? It was been, um, a few people have been working on it for 20 years or more, including one of our founders. But about 10 years ago, certain drugs were found to act at this step. And that step's called translation. So you translate the information in the RNA into basically a recipe for making the protein. And then the protein goes out and does all the functions of the cell. So it was learned that that cancer has hijacked that process and cancer is producing protein, translating from the RNA when it shouldn't be making those proteins. And then that confers on the tumor cell the properties of the tumor. It grows. It doesn't stop growing when it hits the, the basement membrane. It escapes the immune system, and it doesn't kill itself the way normally if a cell gets out of control, it knows how it's auto-programmed to just kill itself. A cancer cell doesn't do that. So how do you go about making sure that regulator is right? Yeah, so there's mechanisms inside the cell first to um, to check this type of regulation, and there are sequences in the RNA. That's part of your genetic code at the DNA. Those carry to the RNA, and they check and proofread to make sure, is it really time to make this protein? Um, and then again, cancer overrides those signals. And so what we did was what our co-founders did was really dissect that machinery and understand how do those regulators work? How do they read the RNA? How do they control translation? And how is cancer overriding those control mechanisms? And then what could we do with, with drug candidates to come in and, and put it back to the controlled state, basically? So I guess my question is a little different. Um, so you have some cells. They, the regulator portion of them has been hijacked, as you said, replaced, or the machinery of that cell has been uh, you know, corrupted. What are you trying to do? Give them new regulator? Actually, we're trying to tone down the activity of the regulator. So mostly cancer has turned a off regulator into an on regulator. So and it's stuck in the on position. And so we're trying to bring it back, maybe not all the way to flat dead off because that's unnatural too, but to set it back to a low level instead of a high level. So we're blocking the action of these proteins, which have been you know, turned up to their highest state possible. They've dialed them up to 11, if you ever saw the movie Spinal Tap. We're trying to put them back on two or three. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I think it's the first time we ever talked about Spinal Tap All right, here in Biotech Nation, but bring it on, bring it on. So do you have to be very specific about this? Do you have to, like, only find the cells where the regulator cells are, are have been hijacked or you can just give it to all cells. It's actually quite a remarkable finding, and what people didn't expect is that you can give it to, to um, all cells by taking an oral medication or an IV that gets distributed to all the cells. The major impact is only in the cells where cancer has turned everything on. And so in the other cells, because they're not already bumped up to some excel, you know, activated state, we can give our drug and there's very little impact. So it's remarkably selective for only the RNAs that are sensitive, and it's remarkably well tolerated, actually, for, um, you know, broadly. It's, it's quite surprising. People who would have thought, well, that's going to be toxic. As soon as you give that, you'll block protein production everywhere, but that doesn't happen. And you obviously also avoid all the work that goes into how do we find the cancer cell? Yeah. You're giving it no, to all cells. No, we do give it systemically. That's right. And so 
Um, and, and that's the advantage if you can give oral, if, if a drug is well tolerated, you can use simple delivery mechanisms that go everywhere, but the effect is localized in the cancer cell, even though the drug is everywhere. Well, you're mid-stage now. You're phase yeah. two in the one, two, three phase uh, trifecta, I call it, uh, to get to an approved drug. And you've got two phase two studies. Let's start with the first one. That's on non-small cell lung carcinoma, which is the, the, that's the, the majority, most, that's the majority the most common, of right? the lung cancers. So tell us about that study. Yeah, so that's starting with a drug called Tamivacertib, or we call it Tommy for short, because that's a mouthful. And there, uh, there's been a breakthrough starting maybe between five and ten years ago with a drug called Keytruda, which boosts your immune system to um, cause your own immune system to attack the tumor cells instead of having to rely on a chemotherapy or some other agent to kill the tumor cell. Um, and that works in a lot of patients, but it doesn't work for that long. And so on average, maybe seven to 10 months after a patient was taking Keytruda, they might start progressing again on average, and the tumor would, would defeat the drug and by um, turning back down the immune system. It cancer would, got smarter. Cancer got smarter. Cancer is very dynamic. It changes in response to therapy. And so the cancers get very smart and learn how to shut down the immune system again. So what we're doing with Tommy is we're adding to Keytruda. So it's a Tommy plus Keytruda, and it's a randomized controlled study. So versus placebo plus Keytruda. And so what you're we getting wanted, Keytruda. Yeah, everybody's getting Keytruda. And, then you, and so that would be the standard therapy for these patients. And if they would standardly start with chemo based on some biomarkers, they're getting that to start with too. But then the, what, what's controlled in our study is you either get our drug Tommy added on to your standard therapy or you get placebo only, so it's just standard care therapy alone. And you're enrolling this trial now? We are enrolling this trial right now for patients, again, with non-small cell lung cancer and what's called pdl one positive. So that's a marker for are they potentially immunologically sensitive. Some tumors, it's just the immune system is nowhere to be found, and those are called pdl one negative. We can't help them yet. But for PDL1 positive, and again, that's about two thirds of the non-small cell lung cancer patients. Um, all those patients are eligible to enroll in this trial. And you'd find that out at effector.com. That's correct, right? Okay, at effector.com. So, mm -hmm. so maybe if it's you, yeah, this yeah could absolutely. Be your, so this this could be your, something that could your... be uh, appropriate to to enroll in that trial. So you have a, a second trial in a different cancer, and this would be ER uh, positive breast cancer. What is that? That's right. And so one, um, you know, women who get breast cancer, it's, there are different, uh, again, markers for what's driving that tumor. So ER is the estrogen receptor. So about 70 to 75% of breast cancer is driven by um, the estrogen receptor, driving them to, to divide in, in, in an uncontrolled fashion. Um, so for ER positive breast cancer, we're using our second drug, which is called Zotadafin, or Zota for short. And that's also a trial that that's, uh, can be found on our website. In ER-positive breast cancer, we're combining with a drug called fulvestrant, which is used today to um, try to block the action of the estrogen receptor where the ER comes from. Um, but that doesn't get everything that's driving the tumor. And so we're adding our drug Zota to try to block other parts of the network that drive that cancer. Okay, so what is this phase two study? So this one is right now we're doing what are called expansion cohorts. So we're still looking for the exact uh, best description of the patients who might benefit. And so these are what are called single arm trials, not yet randomized, but we're taking patients 
if they failed at least one line of therapy and then adding our drug plus fulvestrin and, and trying to understand the biomarkers that best predict the activity of our drug. So they would continue with their current therapy and add this. Yeah, actually, they would probably start a new round of fulvestrin, but they would be getting a standard therapy for their cancer. And then on top of that, we would add our drug. And you're enrolling in this trial as well. We are enrolling in this one. Yes, it's actively enrolling right now. And again, patients could find that at Effector.com. It is a very simple concept at, at, at the base. You're overriding uh, this one portion of the, the RNA, which says, nope, the regulator, don't produce this protein. Yeah. And what's so, remarkable, I think, is that that simple um, control mechanism there is what contributes resistance to many different therapies. And this was actually sort of the discoveries that led to the founding of Effector is that there's a common mechanism that can confer resistance to several different drugs. It's kind of a stress response in a way. And the tumor cells, you know, I was getting away with growth, uncontrolled growth for a while. Now I'm getting pressure from a drug. How could I uh, respond and become resistant to that drug? This, you know, inappropriate upregulation of translation is common to many different resistance mechanisms. So we do see lots of different opportunities for us. We have the lung cancer for Tommy and the breast cancer for Zoda is the first examples of these, but we think this is quite fundamental. And, and it's usually the case when, you've, when you tap into a fundamental aspect, aspect of biology, it usually is applicable broadly in several different circumstances because nature is Beautiful and complex, but ultimately very simple as well. Nature uses the same mechanisms over and over for, to produce biological responses. And if cancer hijacks that and we can reverse that hijacking, then hopefully we could work broadly. So in the first case in both of these trials, you're hoping that it will make the, the treatment more effective immediately. Right. And that, for, lo- for longer as well. That's yes. But, and then yep. the second case, if you will, is like, well, how long will it go by the time that we usually see resistance? That, that's right. And that would be the beauty. And then, you know, again, immunotherapy is pretty well um, tolerated compared to old chemotherapy or something. So if you can give patients longer time with a well-tolerated regimen, that's the real beauty of what the can't, what the drugs can do, extend a relatively normal life and say, keep going about your, your, you know, your family life and everything that you enjoy doing, and you don't have to move yet on to some very you know, hard-to-take chemo regimen. That's the beauty of what we're trying to do. By blocking resistance, we can take drugs that were working and make them work for longer. Well, Steve, this has really been, uh, this has been exciting. Uh, I hope you'll come back and see us again. I would love to do that. Yes, thank you so much. Dr. Steve Worland is the co-founder and CEO of Effector Therapeutics. To enroll in clinical trials for various cancers or simply for more information about the company, the website is effector.com. That's Effector, E-F-F-E-C-T-O-R, effector.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. For any company, this would be remarkable. It's new, as in one year new. It's global, and it already has 64 products, many of which are focused on women. Kevin Ali is the CEO of Organon. So there are three parts of the company. One part is essentially what we call established brands. These are off-patent original products that focus on a variety of genders, obviously everything from cardiovascular to dermatology and whatever. Then we've got a second part of the business is biosimilars. These are essentially the biosimilars of the originators that came off patent in biologic space. And what that means is where you have a generic drug to a 
brand right, pill like drug, Humira, for example, this would Humira, be right. this would be a biosimilar is to an IV drug, which was a brand right. drug like Humira, as like you Humira, said. Exactly. Okay, so you're right. doing the we're doing that part, the tough part, yeah. biosimilars in the right. IV drug space, right. and the third and then part. The is, third part is the women's health space. What started out as really a business, and we only spun out a year ago, focused on fertility and contraception. Now we've added a number of assets. In one year, we've done five different business development deals. We've added a device to treat postpartum hemorrhage, which is a major, uh, one of the leading causes of morbidity and mortality for women in childbirth. We've added two early assets, which means we have to develop them further. Uh, one on preterm labor. Another issue that serves almost 15 million babies are born preterm in the world today and needs new innovations in the space. We added a product for endometriosis, a major issue causing significant disruption to women's lives across the world, and that's a unique asset. And we've added just recently, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, an asset we've been licensed and work with a local company in San Diego called Dare for bacterial vaginosis, which is, again, affects about 21 million women in the U.S., and it recurs and it's a problem. And this is a very unique, creative solution for that. So the future of the company is really focused on solving some of these unmet needs in women's health, of which there are considerable number of unmet needs, specifically focused on women. And then over time, if we want to kind of open the aperture and go after areas predominantly affecting women, like, for example, lupus, chronic cough, celiac disease, migraine, osteoporosis, we'll go into that section as well. Are the 64 products what you started with and now you've added to? Yes. And that yes. was that was a year ago as yes. of this recording. Yes. Where'd you get the 64 products? Well, the 64 products came from Merck. That's what we spun out with. And again, in those three different types of businesses. The new products we got, we just did through business development because in those 64 products, we generate revenue and free cash flow and we invest that money in business development and new assets in various stages of development, the earlier stage, mid-stage, and late stage. But our focus is really, our vision actually, is a better and healthier every day for every woman. And so we're kind of focused where, the, where we're unique because we're the only pharmaceutical company that's global that focuses their future vision on a gender, which is women's health, to try to solve some of these unmet needs. The products that came out of Merck, Merck is no longer selling those products. No, no, they belong completely to this new company called Organon. And when you say global, you started out with global offices? Yeah, we have 60 subsidiaries around the world. We're in Asia, we're in Europe, of course, core Europe, we're in Latin America, we're everywhere. Well, I have to say, if you don't understand this as, as a listener saying, I don't know how, how they do it. It's like, boy, you don't grow things like that. You grow things like, okay, I'm going to start here and get a little bigger and a little mm -hmm. bigger. Only when you had a global biotech such as Merck, which is all over the world, could you spin it out and spin out a full global from day one. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. It's like a mini Merck, except <laughs> in the sense but it of, ain't. but it ain't. <laughs> We're just focused on different things. And I think the, the original assumption was these products that are spinning out are not core to the mission of Merck, but could be core to the mission of another company, which means you can be a better owner of these assets if you have dedicated support, dedicated senior management, and dedicated resources to make the most out of these products. And then 
also to make the most out of the vision of this company, new company, called Organon, which will be focused on women's health. I have to say, as a woman, and people have already noticed, Kevin, that you're not a woman. I, I don't know. We don't have you check any boxes no, or no, announce anything. But that's a fair assumption. I'm giving a, you know, the, the suit and the tie. That's and a the, fair the Kevin and, yeah, okay, got, got it all there. But I have to say, as a woman, I have to say some of the things that you've mentioned and all the sort of the women's diseases, you or conditions rather, a lot of them feed into each other. There's overlap. Is there some sense of interconnection between these women-focused products? Yeah, I mean, you know, women's health was always historically defined as reproductive health. You know, contraception, fertility, things of that nature. But now, interestingly enough, there's some interesting R&D starting to emerge in the space. Small, medium-sized companies who are focused on one area, maybe two, that are expanding way beyond reproductive health. As I mentioned, endometriosis, menopausal symptoms, we're not there yet. Uh, you know, can you do things in menopausal symptoms non-hormonally? And there are approaches that are coming soon. New non-hormonal areas in contraception, preeclampsia, preterm labor, all those areas that have gone unfocused on. Only 4% of the global R&D budgets that our industry is putting into it are focused on women's health. You know, last year, the FDA approved 50 new molecules. Only five of them essentially focused on women's health. So there are a lot of areas that need to kind of be, let's say, stimulated to try to grow because these areas are of significant disruption to women's lives. If I tell you right now that, you know, there's probably in the United States about 10 million women who suffer from severe, severe vasomotor symptoms due to menopause, right, that inhibit them to essentially live a normal life, but yet they don't want hormone replacement therapy. It's not, not something they feel comfortable with, but there's no other alternative. So there needs to be investment in that area so that you bring non-hormonal approaches that solve some of these issues of night sweats and you know, all the dysfunction that comes from that you know, in terms of that. So there's a lot of inv- and more needed investment, and we thought it's time that a company be given birth to that is focused on solving some of these needs because we think a wave is coming. And in the next 10 years from now, we'll be able to solve a lot of these issues that have gone unsolved. Well, as we say on Tech Nation, you know, it ain't a problem until we say it's a problem, but only problems get solved. That's right. <laughs> so formulating this as a problem, making it a focus, you in a sense, you almost lose the gender because, okay, we're focusing on this parameter and this parameter and this parameter. And it's like, ah, oh, okay, now we're really getting down to solving a problem. It may sound like words, words, words to some people, but I can guarantee you the very fact that you're focusing here will make a difference. So the, the four, five percent you know, my recollection is women are actually slightly over 50 percent mm-hmm. and we live longer than you. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? That's a different show. But <laughs> <laughs> so, Kevin, you better get to work fast. You better get to work fast. Now, I heard you say in amongst this conversation, uh, I heard you say, well, about small companies starting up, researchers doing things, companies going, you know, so far, they're sort of in mid stage. So you're interested in basically helping develop this mm-hmm. it within Organon. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, the discovery process sometimes takes years and years to do. I mean, I, you know, we spun out from a company that was 130 years old of Merck, right? The discovery process takes years and sometimes, you know, it's, it, it's very difficult in terms of really getting solutions. But why not, if you have the necessary cash flow, why not go out there and kind of serve as a magnet 
for all those little companies that are focused on something, they kind of fall into it, you know, jump, stumbled into a solution potentially. Um, why not serve as a magnet for them to come to you? And that's exactly what's happened. We've kind of started this movement of sorts where everybody sees Organon and says, oh, Organon, women's health. Great. I'll, I'll bring my innovation to them. What do they think? You know, there's been a huge increase in investment, say, in femtech. The femtech world is exploding right now. Now, not a lot of that is really true, pure innovation. You have to kind of wade through all of it to see what's there. But there's a, a tremendous investments in devices now. You can't imagine the amount of innovation that's coming in into the device world. These are not therapeutics. These are devices that actually solve some of these issues in women's health and, of course, in therapeutics as well. So we like to aim to think about putting the woman in the center of the room and then essentially not saying we're agnostic of whether it's a device or a therapeutic intervention. We want to solve some of these needs. And I think that's the unique approach to the company that we're taking. You're all over the world. There's that, there's no doubt about that. But if I look all over the world, I see different socioeconomic profiles. I see different cultural mores. I see within that, even if they are they're very well off, what women are permitted to do, not permitted to do. How does that fold into what you're doing? How do you how do you see that? And and what do you know now that you've you've been at the helm for a year? Yeah. What I know is you're absolutely right that, you know, if I go into parts of the Asia Pacific region, the way that um, fertility is looked upon or contraception for that matter, or even diagnosis and education of endometriosis and menopausal symptoms are considered differently in different countries. Western European countries in the United States are very different than Brazil, Latin America, and in China and other places in terms of what the medical community, how they see it as an issue. So you're right. The social kind of economic, rather cultural aspects of a given country react very differently to each type of area that we're working on in terms of women's health. You know, some elicit a real reaction like contraception. Some elicit not so much of a reaction. Some think of it as like menopausal symptoms. That's just part of getting old. What, what's the yeah. big deal? You know, <laughs> Keep well, quiet. What's for dinner? Yeah, that's, exactly. That, I believe, is the, the, the exactly. theme. <laughs> well, I think that's starting to change slowly and starting to move. It's like, wait a minute. I want to be able to have solutions to this. Not everybody's going to have a nice, peaceful, easy go of it. Some people have to actually have, are dealing with it for many years. So I think, you know, over time, as you see more and more women around the world getting into positions of political power, whether it's the United States, whether it's in parts of Europe, whether it's in parts of the emerging world, emerging markets, and as you start to see more and more investments that governments are making in this space, and as you start to see more innovations come through, I think it'll all kind of coalesce, and then you'll start to see more movement. So I would rather have a company at the beginning of that rather than the middle of that in order to come to grips with some of these issues and take a leadership role. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming in, and uh, I hope you'll come back and see us again. It'd be nice to meet you again. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Moira. Kevin Ali is the CEO of Organon. More information is available at organon.com. That's O-R-G-A-N-O-N, organon.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 
Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.